Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast that no one listens to. Today's guest is someone who actually does listen to it, um, I'm happy to say. He's been following us ever since, and I'm very happy that he's he's accepted my invitation to be on here. It's Manu Butrich, my Swiss-English friend. I call him Swiss-English because he is Swiss, but we met in England. Hello and welcome, Manu. Hello, thanks for having me on. Ah, it's a, it's an honor. It truly is. Um, we, the, I mean, the we're not going to reinvent the wheel within the next hour. We're going to do the same, the same procedure as as before. Um, we're going to chat about. You gave me a list of ten films. We're going to chat about them. Uh, have some trivia along the way as well, obviously. Uh, so maybe to start with, as always, introduce yourself. Um, and maybe tell us what films you grew up on. So. As you said, I'm Manu, I'm from Switzerland. Um, I went to med film school. I did the two year course. I finished last summer. And since I've been working uh, on Swiss films and uh, mainly as an AD, so similar to you. Um, and I grew up, I'd say, mainly on Disney films, which is, I mean, I still say Disney films are my favorite, but I uh, I think it might just be me remembering them most. I mean, I, 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 you, you've told me this before, and, and I was very surprised to see how Disney film free the list of the 10 film the, the ten films were that you, you sent to me, because I was expecting it to be like nine out of 10 Disney films, which they're not. Um, which will be interesting to hear and understand why, because you have included a couple of Disney films. Um, and to use the popular phrase, let's dive right in. Uh, we'll start off with a non-Disney film, to the surprise of no one. Uh, Shrek the second is on there. And I, I love this bit of, of insight, because you, you did your homework properly, Manny. You didn't just give me a list, you actually put in like comments next to the films. And every film had like a little a little sub comment, and you explained briefly why it's in there. And with this one, your comment was just obviously. <laughs> so, so explain explain why it's so obvious. Because many people say that the second Shrek film is kind of the worst one, sandwiched in between the first and the third, which they preferred. It's still obviously massively grossing, and and you know the the, the Shrek franchise is hugely successful, full films plus Puss, Puss in Boots plus the TV series, um. But but you went for this one. Yeah. Explain. I I I massively disagree. The second one it might not be the best one. I'm still torn between the second one and the first one, but the third one's definitely the one just ignore it out of the law. The worst one by far. But no, I, I chose Shrek the second because, as we mentioned before, my list, if it would have just been favorite films, would have been just Disney, and I tried to stay away from that a little bit to bring a little bit more, um, well... Diversity. That's the word I was looking for, thanks. <laughs> I, I, DreamWorks will be very happy, by the way. Um, I wanted to bring a bit more diversity into it and not just fill up the whole list with Disney films. But I do really love animation, and so, I mean, DreamWorks also has some great films, and Shrek 2's in there because I think it's just one of the best sequels that there is. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it was one of the few sequels that got 
nominated for for an Oscar or for, like for screen. I'm not sure what it was nominated, but it was um, definitely nominated for for best animated feature. And I think it's the first sequel um, that got the Oscar nomination for that particular category. So it's it's very it's very successful for sure. But then but then what sets this apart from the first one? Why why did you why did you opt for this one? I think the first one recently has become a massive meme, and people going back to it. And I mean that was. If memes would have existed back then, the same way they would now, it would have been a meme instantly, I think. But uh, Shrek the Second, I think, just does such a good job of continuing the story and um, expanding the world and staying true to itself while still going further. It's, it's, yeah, I just think they went with the same themes and it just speaks to me a bit more than the first one. Yeah, they, they managed to stay original. Um, original is a, is a word that segues us nicely into your second um, animated film on this list. It's called Treasure Planet. This is a Disney film, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, from 2002, uh, directed by Ron Clements and John Musker, the gentleman who directed Moana in 2016, or for the older listeners, Aladdin in 1992, slash Ariel the Mermaid in 1989. Um, this is this is a, an interesting choice as well, and and your your comment to this was was that it's a very underrated Disney film, and it, it really is. I mean, it's, it, was, it was an absolute box office failure. Um, it was I think it was Disney's biggest financial loss at the time, um, and it's this weird story of Jim Hawkins who kind of runs an intergalactic inn with his mum, which then gets destroyed, and they have to go on an adventure with cyborgs and like intergalactic things and then they meet this these intergalactic pirates they have to team up with and, and it, it gets quite dark at times and and so it's it's a very it, it's not a very popular choice so explain to me why you still included it so this really i think it's one of the most pretty disney films ever made and similar to like um, Atlantis, which is also kind of an underrated Disney film, it also has that steampunky aesthetic of it's futuristic, but at the same time uh, almost Victorian a bit, and it kind of mixes those two, so it sets you in a different world uh, immediately, or in a different universe, but it still feels relatable, and I mean, come on, the ships flying through space, and yeah, yeah, uh, of Jim on his solar flyers, kite surfer, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have actual ships, like, if, if a pedestrian haven't seen it, there's actual space ships that take ships very literally without them, they like it's a pirate ship that floats through space. It's, it's quite the thing. Yeah, and I just think the story's really nice, because obviously it's from Treasure Island, it's an adaptation of that story, but it just follows this kid who was raised by one mom, the dad left at some point, and you kind of see him, he's already given up on everything at the beginning, yeah, he was a rebel and misunderstood, and then he kind of finds a father figure, and almost wants to, he's just desperately looking for love and acceptance, and gets uh, disappointed at times, but then again, it's just it's a wonderful film with great characters and great, great chemistry and the visuals, as I said before, are just stunning. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got it's got some big names attached as well. Joseph, it was jo Joseph 
Levitt's first voice acting gig and, and Emma Thompson um, stars in it as well as a voice actor. So so it's definitely it's definitely kind of a, a hidden gem for, for Disney Disney lovers and non-Disney lovers as well. Um, and and the, you, you already mentioned that you, you're a fan of, of animated films. The, the first trivia question is also concerns also animated films. Uh, Treasure Planet was nominated for an Oscar in 2003, but which film did it lose out to? It was, I mean, this is the category for best animated feature, obviously. 2003. Yes. Mm. I mean, I know that it came out on the same weekend as Harry Potter, the first one, which kind of was one of the reasons it failed so miserably. It bombed, yeah. I, I, animated film from 2003. It's not Shrek, is it? No, 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 no. That was that was a year before, and the sequel was a year after. Yeah. No, I don't know. It's Miyazaki Spirited Away, which we've also discussed on this podcast earlier. They they just pivoted it, yeah. Um, you we we. So to kind of take this away from 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 animated films a bit, which you said you grew up on, I know you grew up in various places in Switzerland and England and and also in Asia, I think at some point. So what was what was that like on the one hand, and how did films influence you during your upbringing? So yeah, I was born in the Baltics, but I left there when. Was two, so I don't really have any memories there. But I spent four and a half years in Sri Lanka, and that's kind of where some of my formative years in childhood. And we did have a TV there, but one without any like cable connection or satellite connection. So literally, all we could do was watch uh, VHS tapes, and we didn't have many. I think we had The Jungle Book, The Lion King, Bambi, and Snow White. And so when, like, the once a month or whatever, we were, we had, okay, yeah, you can have a TV night and we'll watch the films. We'd watch the same films over and over again. And especially as a kid, seemingly, Snow White was my favorite, and I'd cry every time Snow White died. Because it was just so touching. And it's funny for me to think today that the oldest film of the bunch, the first film that Disney released in, what was it, 37? Was, must have been yeah. it's the one that just uh had such a great big impact on me already as a kid so so you you're you you were you were kind of limited to to vhs tapes and 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 you didn't really have access to to cables and stuff and and um i think that shows in your in your films lots of films came out in the mid 2000s and i assume they would have um they would have kind of influenced your your childhood in that time. How how big was I mean you you lived abroad for many years. How big was the influence of um, foreign cinema on your upbringing? I mean, I moved to Europe to England in two thousand and then to Switzerland in two thousand and five, and that's basically when I started watching more of these films. As you said, the mid two thousand is kind of when it started. And I actually started watching films as not just the same old, same old. And I mean, I grew up speaking English. I always watched the films in English until I was in Switzerland. And then suddenly, um, when watching it with other people, 
friends or whatever, I couldn't watch the English films anymore because they wouldn't understand. So we'd watch them in German and I kind of got to know that. But I never was a big fan of the German films. I mean, I'm not trying to judge at all. It's just I didn't know any and I just always liked the big spectacle of blockbusters and American and British films and TV. Which, I mean, makes sense. And, and, and speaking of blockbusters, the, the next couple of films I want to talk about, they definitely tick the box as well. The first one you picked out is um, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, uh, Peter Jackson. It's the, the, the second of three absolute epics. Peter Jackson obviously directed all three of The Lord of the Rings installments, plus all the Hobbit films. Uh, this one as well is three hours long. I mean, the list of, of, of big names is, is as long as any list of big names can be. Elijah Wood, Sir Ian McKellen, Viggo Mortensen, Liv Tyler, Landa Bloom, Kate Blanchett. You know, they're, they're, it's endless. And, and this is the one um, with, the, with the massive Urukai battle at the end. Um, and it's at like 8.7, which is a ridiculously high rating on IMDb, but it's the lowest rated out of all the three um of the of the the epics 17 oscars into i could go on with this um and and you're you you wrote down a very interesting comment because you said it's the best of the three and it led you to filmmaking now i'm very intrigued to hear what that is because i assume knowing your love for reading i assume you read the book exactly i i at some point was introduced to fantasy and obviously it didn't take long for lord of the rings to come up so I got the books, I read them, I realized that there were films of it. And the fun thing is that I remember this was in sixth grade. Someone in my class had the film, the whole film on a file on their phone. And we spent a full day in school just sending it over from his phone to my phone on Bluetooth. And I had to erase my whole memory card and then watched uh, not even 144p, I'm sure it was like, I don't know, 72p or whatever. It was horrible quality. Oh my word, did you have one of those old like Sony Ericsson or Nokia phones? Exactly, those old Sony Ericsson phones. But oh I, God. Whole thing, and that was, the, the Two Towers was the first of the three. I actually saw that way and I watched it so many times. But by the time I actually watched all three films uh, in good quality, I, I just had this connection to that second film. And then every time we'd, uh, me and my friends would do the Lord of the Rings marathons in the extended version, spend over 12 hours just watching the film, uh, the series. And we'd, I always, when the second film came, I was up there. I was waiting for that over an hour part of preparing for a battle. And yeah, it just drags on, but it doesn't get boring, does it? Exactly. It's just, it's such an epic. And then, I found out, because I was just trying to find everything I could about these films, I found out that there was like 16 hours of behind-the-scenes materials that they made like a documentary about how they made the film. And I realized that like, oh wait, it's not just active and the camera guy, there's, there's a crew behind, there's someone who made every single piece of chain mail they were wearing. And so a whole smithing team, there was a uh, a team who organized how people got from A to B. There was a whole VFX thing, there was motion capture, and that just made me think, wow, that's, that would be such a cool job to have. So, so was that almost, uh, did that almost become 
more of, a, of the reason why you love this film so much the the kind of the 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 spectacle of it and the size of it and and what it meant to you personally having having watched it on your phone on that really like tiny screen. I can only imagine what that must have been like because those screens were not very good back in the day. So so do you reckon the the kind of the the vibe and the aura surrounding it for you became more important than the actual film itself? Yes and no. It gave it more meaning, but it already like standalone. I still think it's one of the greatest films ever made. I mean, so, undoubtedly, yeah. I mean, I, I love the film anyway, and this just helps it along. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, it's the one. The thing that that amazes me so much is that usually, because I'm I I read both Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter as well, and I always I'm always so jealous of how Lord of the Rings managed to adapt the books so bloody well. I mean, obviously they left out massive chunks, but they still did them justice. Whereas in Harry Potter, the, some of the charm got a bit lost, and we'll we'll talk about another film in a minute where I'm sure you'll have your say on adaptation as well. Um, but I was always so amazed at how well they transferred everything into into visuals and still made such compelling films. Exactly. It was like, I literally, I'd read the first book, then watch the first film, then read the second book and the second film and so on. The first time I watched the films really fully through. And um, it was just, I was, I obviously realized all the parts that were missing, but the parts that were in there, they were so true to what I had imagined in my yeah. head. And like, I, I didn't even have that that many pictures from the second film in my head because I couldn't see anything on that screen. So like, it was still, it was so true to what I had thought. And yeah. It and was... I mean, it's and it's still like, like such a, you know, it's so well directed as well. And obviously the performances are just as strong. So it's really, they create this whole world, which like, it's amazing, um, and then that brings us to the next film on your list. And again, it's it's kind of creating this world. Um, Avatar, two thousand and nine, James Cameron, known only really for absolute blockbuster and box office hits: Titanic, Terminator, Aliens, etc., etc. Um, actually, not etc. because that's really all he did. He did bring he does like one film every ten years, doesn't he? Um, I remember this being, because obviously we, we grew up, we're, we're roughly the same age, so we, we would have gone this at roughly the same times in our lives, and I remember this being a massive hype, and then everyone was like, you know, it's the 3D, was kind of the first big 3D film, um, and everyone was anticipating it, and everyone was expecting this huge spectacle, which we then got, but within like a couple of months, it felt like almost this had like disappeared again, and no one quite knew why, I mean, the story is obviously not amazing but like the way it was advertised you'd expected this to go into history for more reasons than just being a box office hit and even you said loved it for years now can't ignore the flaws in your comments so explain where your love came from and then where the flaws are so basically as you said it was the first real 3d film the town just next to us just had opened a new uh, cinema for this purpose to have a 3D cinema. So we were there the day it came out, we went in, this is the first time I ever went to a premiere of the film, and I watched it and I was just gobsmacked by the, the world building and all those intricacies of every flower had something, every tree was different, every animal, it, it felt real but not, and it was just such a spectacle again. 
and I just thought it was amazing that 3D was some, something so new to me. I had only had shitty blue-red uh, DVD stuff before, but like this was real and it worked so well. And then I this was also the first film I watched twice in the cinema, well, more than once. So interesting. It was, it was it, I was a massive fan of it. I got the DVD and watched it so many times when I had it. Like my hype kept going for like a year. But then, yeah, it was always in the back of my mind. Oh, yeah, it's such a great film. It's one of my favorite films, blah, blah, blah. And then at some point, I, when I started thinking about films and, like, the stories and stuff and started watching, like, YouTube, uh, people on YouTube having video essays about films and started thinking critically, I started thinking, well, what about my favorite films? Like, do they hold up? And then I was thinking about Avatar, and I was really unsure and then I actually searched specifically for a video essay on Avatar and found that like it's really not revered in the film critic space because it really isn't no bad telling of Pocahontas and I just I was gobsmacked I was like no you can't destroy my my favorite film but then I, I really I, I just see the flaws today and I recently watched such a good the video essay about the music of how ironic the music itself is because it was supposed to be from all these different cultures we have in the world together and then make something fully new but then in the end Cameron or whoever was in charge just said no make it more so that western audiences will accept it so it was another whitewashing on top of what the film already does yeah, and you can you can sense that I reckon as well. I still have a trivia question um, about that though, and it's a bit of a complicated one because I'm talking. Um, obviously, I had it had to be about box office with James Cameron involved. Um, now, in the U.S. and Canada, we're talking grossing films, and we're talking adjusted for inflation. How many top ten films does James Cameron have adjusted for inflation in the U.S. and Canada of all time? To help you out, non-adjusted to inflation, number one is obviously Endgame, which came out last year, followed by Titan, uh, followed by Avatar on number two, and then Titanic on number three. So he has two top ten ones. If you don't adjust it for inflation, that's worldwide. So now my question is, adjusting for inflation, how many top ten films does James Cameron have? I'd go with four. Four? Yes. Tell me which ones. I mean, obviously, like, Avatar. Titanic. Titanic. I'd say. Oh. Now, now. Hmm. Which one would I say? I. Which ones did he do? Do you have a list? He has a. He, he did terminate the Terminators and Alien. Actually, the second Aliens, Aliens. So yeah, I think I'd go with the Terminator and the and Alien. You know what? It's just one. What? Only yeah. Only Titanic makes the list of uh, adjusted for inflation. Yeah, Avatar is fifteen adjusted for bit for inflation, but it beats Endgame. 
I thought that was quite surprising because I thought he would have done great back in the day, but it's li it's literally just Titanic in the top ten, and it's like fifth or something. Gone with the Wind in 1939 is the first one. Yeah, I was as surprised as you are. Um, let's let's move on because we we met at Met Film School, which is quite ironic given that we're from such close like close to each other in Switzerland. We grew up very close to each other. Um, you went to Met. You did the two year course, much more intense program than than many other people did. What what did you learn at Met? What did Met teach you? Because I know you came off a biology um, gig back in Switzerland. You started studying biology, if I'm not much mistaken. So what? What did you learn at Met? What did Met give you? I think the biggest thing I got through Met was being able to think, live and breathe film every single day and talk to people doing the same. And just through that, just basic conversations, getting more knowledge, getting more tips and stuff, and just immersing myself fully into something and it's the people that I met even more than what I learned per se. But what I really did learn most of all was so basically how to work with equipment. And in the end also, the job I'm doing now, uh, assistive directing, I, I hadn't even known that was a thing before. And now it's the thing I want to do. So yeah, in the end that did thanks to Matt. The skills, a lot of them, I had to learn by doing but in the end yeah it was a really fun thing and all in all it was good to do it in two years I think because otherwise I would have kind of uh, almost lost that whole being fully immersed in film for those months that I would have been away until I came back I mean depending on what you do because most people like to do something about film in the breaks but I mean I understand what you mean of course it's a very intense um, experience and a very intense you're very close to filmmaking in uh, as 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 a craft as a um, as a working craft I should say because we do so many things so you don't regret going to Met. I do not regret going to Met. No. What a lovely sentiment we should we should have that on the they should have that on their website. Um, then I I the fun thing I don't regret is watching the next film I want to talk about. It's called The Birdcage, and it's the oldest film on your list. It came out in 1996 by a director called Mike Nichols, who most people will know from The Graduate, which came out in 1967. Obvious classic. He also did The Closer with Natalie Portman, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 66. Um, this is a, a an interesting inclusion in your in your list, and and again I have to read out the comments because I it, they made me smile. It was it was just Robin Williams, and you drew a little heart next to them, and I watched the film, and I knew exactly what you meant because he he plays this gay cabaret owner, who I mean it's a comedy so it's a bit bizarre, but his son, he has like a son of a one-off thing with with a woman. His son is getting married to this super conservative senate or congressman or something. And they have to like masquerade or they have to like pretend they're not actually gay in order to make them accept who they are. And it's obviously like the whole charade that like, tumbles down and, you know, there's a conclusion and blah, blah, blah. But it's a massive, it's a big statement for the whole LGBTQ movement. Um, there's lots of drags in there. There's uh, Robin Williams is as charming as he ever is. Explain to me what made you include this. Oh. Basically, Robin Williams is one of my all-time favorite actors. 
especially also in the dramatic roles. Like, obviously, he was the best part of Aladdin when he was the genie. And, but then I, listening to the podcast, I had heard others already talk about Dead Poet Society and Good Bull Hunting. And so I was kind of stuck between going with Good Morning Vietnam or Birdcage. And in the end, I just thought Birdcage was such a wholesome film in the end because this, this couple who's been out since forever now has to go back into the closet. They were comfortable in their life. Everyone around them accepted them for who they were. And now this, this, his son's future, well, his son's fiance's dad, who's this conservative guy who needs some good stuff in the media, comes along and just because of that he has to put up a charade but he loves his son but then again he's it's it's the whole dilemma and yes it's a comedy but it also has that really good drama that you can see that robin williams just really can bring out as well and just makes me respect him all the more i i completely understand that yeah he, he's he's so versatile and he he's he completely owns this role and there's this i remember this one very funny scene where like you just said, they kind of it's ha- kind of have to do the reverse thing. They have to learn to act straight because all they all they do and they're so accepting and their surroundings are so accepting of their sexuality that they there's one scene where they have to walk straight after years of walking gay. And I mean, you know, these are terms that the film uses. It's not me saying this, but and then they they, they he kind of teaches his partner how to act in a non-homosexual way, and it, and it's it's bizarre and hilarious, and it and it has a very strong message. That really resonated with me, and I was quite surprised to to see this in here because it was, yeah, it's not your it's not your go to Robin Williams film. You know, when I think Robin Williams, I I go Jumanji or something, you know, but not necessarily this. Yeah. So it's a it's a cool inclusion that you know broaden your horizons to all those people who are who are listening. Go watch this film. The next film, perhaps, don't go and watch it because it's it's Aragon in two thousand and six came out in two thousand and six. Um, John Malkovich is there, and and Ed Spielers has the lead, who people might know from Downton Abbey, and I and this is this is I'm this made me smile so much because I remember I'm obviously a huge Harry Potter fan, and in and in two thousand in mid two thousand this was Harry Potter was the big thing, and then this came out, and all the hipsters gravitated towards Aragon, and I'm saying that a bit mean because I never read Aragon, but I know that the book must be amazing. And then I heard from like the the, the get go that the film was so bad, and you know, and it, it's and it's it's I watched it and it, it is it is quite appalling, and I'm not saying that to like shoot your shoot down your inclusion because you actually did say it's your first massive disappointment. So go talk me through that disappointment because I I'm sure you read the book. Yes, the Aragon books were actually what brought me into fantasy. They were the first fantasy books I read other than Narnia, which I don't want to diminish in any point, but it was just something I kind of grew up with, and this was something fully new, fully out there, like dragons as a main character in there was really interesting to me. And I I, I devoured these books when they came out, and I loved it. yeah, I mean, I've, I've reread the books since again. I mean, I've reread them multiple times back then, but I reread them in the last couple of years again. 
and they're not as great as I remember, but the story behind it, the, the idea of the magic system that was built up, it's all great and it's so wonderful. And then I heard they were making a film and I could not wait. This was the first film that I literally, I waited for trailers. I waited for anything I could have. I again went to the premiere and, oh no, I missed the premiere, I had to go later. But I went to watch it and I had already bought the DVD at that point because I uh, I had to I watched it so late that the DVD was already out in some way or shape or form. And then I went in there, watched it, and literally came out not knowing what to think because it was so cool to see the characters on screen that I loved. But I just I just wouldn't want to allow myself to get disappointed, but I really was, and it was heartbreaking. And I took the film home and I watched it, and it didn't get any better with the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was amazed as well because I I had heard only good things from from the books, and I, and this was kind of I remember this being almost on a par with Harry Potter. I remember people going, "Nah, nah, nah Aragorn is like." It's like it takes the good stuff out of Harry Potter, adds it to Lord of the Rings, and then also takes out some Star Wars um, elements, and then it's like the best thing out of all three of them, or all four of them. And and I, I mean, the writing is very bad, and Aaron Levine does the does the the cover song, which to me is hilarious because that's the most two thousands thing that could ever happen. You know, Aaron Levine was a thing back then, and and it's it's weird, and and but they also gave it to this debut director Stefan Fangmeier who's known for visual effects and it's such a it's everything about it is just strange because I would again everyone was expecting this to be great and then it just wasn't I do have trivia though in regards to this film we've already discussed that he is uh it was Stefan Fangmeier is a was a debut director with Aragon my question is how many slash what films has Stefan Fangmeier directed since Aragon? I'd love to say never again. That, that that was his first and only one. But yeah, no, you'd be correct. He did he did he never got another gig again. I'm I'm really sorry, dude. I like but no, after that one. No, and, and it's and it's it's just kind of symptomatic, isn't it? Because he he wouldn't be getting any other things for that, and it's just surprising that they gave this huge franchise, which was poised to be a box office hit, to this debut dude who was unproven in any way, shape, or form, and rightly so. Apparently, he's a great visual effects supervisor. Apparently, you know, he he did Born and other things that were impressive but not this one let's let's put that behind us let's try and ignore the disappointment and turn to another disappointment life after university um you you said you said earlier that you were you were now working as an ad i know you've been working as an ac as well because we went to kurdistan together in 2019 another podcast filling tale that one is um perhaps for another day though so tell me what how is the real world different to what you had expected? How is ADing, ACing in the real world compared to what Met Film School was like or what they prepared you for? It's surprisingly similar. I didn't think it would be. Um, but obviously it's bigger budgets, it's bigger crews, it's 
more responsibility in that sense. You have uh, better equipment. You have the the reality of life. You can't just. I've, I've known a couple of people who are not feeling like it today, so I'm just not going to show up to say you can't do that. And I mean, the Kurdistan project was, as you said, a whole story to itself. But it was really fun for me to get in there, and especially because I was supposed to just be a, a data wrangler, and then I kind of got into camera assisting as well because they fired the guy that was supposed to do it. So that was really interesting. And now working on a TV show in Switzerland on uh, as a third AD, I was surprised how much responsibility they give to you immediately and just really trust you to come if you have questions and otherwise you know what you're doing. Because, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of those, I mean, that I, I share that experience for sure that they, it's kind of a sink or swim thing, isn't it? They like, they just assume that you've been in it for ages and you can handle it. And them kind of assuming that, did you find that daunting or did it kind of just work out? I mean, the two big projects I've worked on since I left Met, I've uh, in both cases had the the person above me, so the first assist, assistant camera in Kurdistan and now the first assistant director in this TV show here in Switzerland, they're really supportive. They literally, I, I can go to them with the stupidest questions and they'll take their time to explain it to me. So I'm still lucky. I'm allowed to be the new guy, the noob, but at the same time, they do still expect me to do the work and do it well. And if not, they'll be disappointed and they'll let me know it which yeah I think that that just works really well for me I, I thought it was more daunting every time when I started than when I actually got into it and started working with the people and realizing how great they are and how experienced and how willing to teach yeah because that's the that's what I find the good thing most most of these people that you'll have as superiors they'll they'll know what it was like when they first started off and they don't, you know, they, they allow for mistakes most of the time, at least, you know, there's obviously some stuff that you can't come back from and you might get fired from, but more often than not, if you show commitment and you're a decent enough guy, then they'll be forgiving to mistakes as well. What would you say, I mean, obviously, I, I two of our listeners at least are still at uni and they'll they'll be facing these steps as well very soon. What, what, what advice do you have? as a one-year-old graduate, what advice do you have for, for them? Um, pull through. I mean, I, there were times where when I thought I was fed up and just, come on, I'll just leave and do something. In the end, it's you've come this far, come on, just uh, get the piece of paper, because you'll realize at some point it wasn't just a piece of paper, you actually got more out of it. And just get as much out of it as you can. Talk to as many people as you can. Work with as many people as you can. Get as much out from the tutors as you can, especially also like after class. If you can, just have a chat with them. Try and find out if they have any tips with, with, uh, for your projects in the future. Try finding out what they're working on at the moment, what their problems are. And just soak it all up like a sponge. 
you sound like a real like a real tutor already. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of speaking of tutors, that segues up nicely into the next film, Logan, twenty seventeen. Um, you wrote this is this is an interesting inclusion again because you wrote down it's the first script you've fully read, and I want to talk about that in a second because it was like the first live action superhero film that was nominated for a screenwriting Oscar. So there's something in the script there that's worth reading. Um, it's the last instalment of the Wolverine trilogy, the the tenth in and last instalment of the X Men franchise. It's uh, Hugh Jackman again um, as Wolverine, kind of like the last big shout um, he has. He's getting old. He's getting weaker. His powers are slowly diminishing, and he kind of has to say goodbye to 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 everything really. And and there's obviously loads of subplot, and there's a little girl that he has to save that then turns out to be made out of his DNA. Blah blah blah. I'm not going to go into too many details because there's other things I want to talk about. It's a bit of a this the departure of the classical superhero film, and I know you love a superhero film, so talk to me about that aspect of it. How how does it rank amongst superhero films for you? So yeah, as I said before, I love Leaps and Blockbusters, and I watched the Marvel films all the way up to Endgame. Since I'm not really interested, that's that's like my original trilogy done now. But still, um, I I really think it's interesting what they did with these characters that I did not grow up with. I never was a comic reader. I just found them through the MCU and how they brought it together and everything. And I always watched the X-Men with a bit of a smile on my face because most of them were not that great. But then this film just came out of nowhere and it's R-rated. It's a great, honest look at what actually happens in the end. It's not the glamour. It's not everything. It's just so raw and true. And in my opinion, other than The Incredibles, the best superhero film ever made. It's a very bold sentiment. Because, it, yeah, it's, it's very dark and gritty, isn't it? It's quite... Yeah, that's what I mean by departure from superhero films. But would you, st- would you then still 100% rank it as a superhero film? Or is the fact that it's perhaps not so much a superhero film what makes it so interesting for you? I mean, I still think it's a superhero film because, well, it's about a known superhero character. But it's not only a superhero film. It's also a film about someone who's given up on life and has to step up again and become a father, something he never really managed to be before. Someone who's always kept hurting those he loved and now has to find a way to save this person he doesn't even know and um, never wanted or never asked for. So I... I, it's it's multiple stories all wonderfully woven together, and yeah, I still think it's a superhero film. Just it's also more. Okay, and and you said this is the first script you ever read. Um, why 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 did you pick this one? So in the screenwriting elective that I did at Matt's, I had to read a feature-length script, and I didn't know which one to choose, but then Logan just came to mind because I wanted to, to to take one of the films I actually love. And I realized that there's a lot of um, causes in there as well. There, there was also some stuff where it's just they're, they're existing there, they're traveling from A to B or something. And I just wanted to see like how much 
of this was done while filming and how much was actually in the script. And in the end, I, I loved reading that script. I thought it might still be a chore, but it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, a, a good script, you'll you'll notice a good script when you read it. It will read like the film watches itself, I always find. And this is a jam-packed script, isn't it? There's so much plot to this particular film that it's like, it's full of little bits and pieces of, of filmmaking, that of bits of, of, of pieces of things that make filmmaking so great, isn't there? Like flawed characters and troubles and action sequences and everything kind of comes together in it. Um, everything coming together is is a is a great segue into the next film as well. Um, it's the the end of the aforementioned on this pop, pop podcast aforementioned Cornetto trilogy. Edgar Wright's The World's End. Um, with Byron, we discussed Hot Fuzz. Um, that's episode three, I think. For those of you who want to go listen to that, um, it's it came out in twenty thirteen. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost team up again. With Edgar Wright, um, it's the, the story is is old friends that reunite for this one epic pub crawl um, in the city they all grew up in, or something, and and the city has since been taken over by robots. And it really is like again classic Edgar Edgar Wright with all the fast cuts and and like the bizarre editing and directing styles, and the comedy is as always as dry as hell and and quick as 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 anything. And and the premise then becomes they have to make it to the last pub. Um, and it's you know it's a very simple premise as always, but it's filled with with uh, cameos and with jokes and with with action and with just they it, it always looks like they had so much fun shooting this. Did you have fun watching this, or is this is this your favorite comedy, or why does this make the cut? So yeah, this is the only film on the list that doesn't have a comment to it. Um, it's my favorite of the three, and. I, I, I don't know, it's just such a fun film. It just makes... When I watched it, it was so... I, I felt like there's some people I know I could actually be doing this with that, that, that might pressure me or I'll try to pressure them to go back and do this tour that we always talked about. I just go pub to pub and just be oblivious to everything that's so blatantly wrong around us. They're just all about the good old times and what's changed since and it's so nice to see how like Edgar Wright as you said his style is just it looks like so much fun like everyone's having so much fun but then he also has the, the dramatic parts in there and all in all it's just it's so much fun and I think it's a great conclusion to the trilogy it it really is. I mean, I, I it's it's been on my on my rewatch list for a very long time. It needs like a a, a rowdy um, Sunday afternoon in with with the boys to to rewatch this. I feel um, the the my my trivia question is also related to the trilogy in itself, um, and it and it's a it's a, a review one. So which one of the trilogy got the highest Rotten Tomato score? Ooh. I think the world's end is the worst ranked of the three. I don't know why. In my opinion, very wrong. I I'm not sure. I I'd go with Shaun of the Dead. You would be correct. It's very close though. It's ninety-two percent for Shaun of the Dead, ninety-one for Hot Fuzz, 
and 89 for World's Ends, and they all did, like, amazingly well, and Shaun of the Dead just pips it. And I'm sure, I mean, I, I've already I've already gotten lists from other people um, that are going to come on this podcast in the future, and, and that we're going to keep talking about the Cornetto trilogy. It's, it's a recurring theme with people. Um, so look out for that in the future. Um, let's 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 talk about the future in general. Um, what's what's up for you in the future? Are you going to come back to England? Are you going to AD more? Are you going to AC more? Are you going to write, direct? What is it that you have in mind? Where is this life going to take you? I'm not sure. For the moment, I'm glad I got work. Well, not right now. Going on. Basically, I'm. I, I'll take any job if they pay me enough to live next to it. And if that's in Switzerland, if that's in the UK, if that's somewhere fully different, um, I just want to work in film and I want to work with people. I started working now in the film industry here in Switzerland and I love the people I've met. I think they're really cool, really interesting. And I would love to get to know some of them more and work with them more, but at the same time, if, it, if, it, if the job takes me elsewhere, I'm more than happy to go. I'm, I'm not planning to live the rest of my life in Switzerland. So are you, are you considering looking for AD jobs perhaps in, in England? I am from time to time, but it's kind of hard if you're not there and talking to people, having an, an active network. So, yeah, I, I'm looking mainly for agent jobs, but at the moment, because I'm starting out, I'll basically take almost any job that I feel comfortable doing. So maybe not editor or director, but <laughs> almost anything else. If, it, if you just need a couple of, uh, of hands to help you carry something from A to B all the time, I'll be a runner, I'll be in the art department. I really don't care that much. I just want to work and want to learn. That's very refreshing to hear. We should send this to all major um, production companies in the world, and I'm sure they'll they'll look into you and come back to you. Um, you you spoke about IDing and and about running, even um, writing, directing, cinematography. Is are those are those things options for you, or perhaps even producing? I produce for my graduation film, and that's something. If I can help it, I'm never going to do again. <laughs> Why not? It was... I just don't like being the guy fully in charge of the whole thing, but then not actually, like, being in charge of the filming. Like, if I'm already in charge of it, I want to be there. I want to be on set. I want to see what's happening and see who's doing what and be in control there. But at the same time, that's why I love AD so much. I can see everyone, I can get them to come together and work together, and at the same time, I don't have to already bring the, the uh, how do you say, the creative part to it, because I just don't feel confident enough in that part yet. And I mean, I love the technical side as well. And maybe someday I might write something, I might direct something, I might want to be more involved in the camera side of something but that's something for the future and for the time being i'm really happy with the ag job and the way this path is going and yeah 
hope to continue it. Okay, so so for now, focusing on ADing mainly in Switzerland, but never say never. And people, if you need a producer, don't ask Manu. Um, as we have we have two more films to discuss, and I I left these last for for several reasons. One of them is my favorite is one of my favorite films of all time as well. The other one I watched very recently, but it's it's I mean one of the big big classics, isn't it? City of God, two thousand and two. Fernando Meire, yes, and that's the last time I'm going to pronounce any kind of Portuguese slash Spanish slash Brazilian name, because um, I'll get it wrong. Uh, people will know him from directing The Two Popes, or The Constant Gardener, a bit less recent. Um, and City of God is is this brutal, violent, epic story in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro, in set in the 60s and 70s. Um, there's, it's about drugs, it's about violence, about kids in that whole, like, hood in the ghettos of, of Brazil. Um, it's beautifully shot, but also very jarring in terms of the themes that they talk about. Obviously, it's so dark and so, and everyone gets shot and everyone kills and murders and rapes. And, and it's, it's, but it's, but it's a, an amazing film. And you're always thinking this feels so real. It's shot in such a documentary style way of shooting. We use that word um, very frequently, documentary style, but it's, it's, it feels like you're watching something that's actually happened. And then at the end, the credits roll and you see the real footage. So all those gang wars and stuff, they were based on true events. Now, this is all for, for film lovers, common knowledge, but it made your, it made your list for your comment was um first foreign language film is it just the first or is it your favorite so it was the first foreign language film in a language i don't understand so yeah. like I've, I've seen german films i've seen french films and stuff but like this was a language i literally don't speak i need the subtitles or stuff and i i watched it and it was just it was such a different thing to what I was used to watching, exactly because, as you said, it was so documentary, and all of these kids that were playing, I mean, I think one or two of them were professional actors, or semi-professional actors. Yeah, I think one professional actor and everyone else was from the favelas. Exactly, the rest of them were all just from around there, and I, I was just gobsmacked that you could do such a thing, that you could just go there, and then I... I, I loved the film as well. It was just really, really touching. It, I, I had read books before about kids living, growing up on the streets in Brazil, and that was kind of the, the only thing I knew about it. Uh, and then actually seeing what I had read those years back, it's not the same stories, but it's always the similar things that seem to happen there and that were depicted in this, which it was just, yeah, it was moving. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's one of those, I mean, I've never been to Brazil. I've never, I've, I grew up in, in Europe mostly, I mean, exclusively in Europe, actually. And it's so not relatable. And yet you completely relate with almost all the characters in there. You, you understand the world they live in, or you don't, you don't understand in terms of like, I, I know what it's like to be in the favelas, but you kind of, you feel for them. And you you root for them, and you feel like you'd act the same if you were there. 
and it's it's an amazing an amazing concept and and uh, you know you will know all about this how difficult it is to shoot films with people in conditions like that you know having been to Kurdistan you know how difficult it is and, and they certainly pulled it off um the last film on the list is The Untouchables Les Intouchables um Eric Doledano and Olivier Nakache they also did Samba with one of the main one of the two main um actors in this one um it's also based on a true story of this quadriplegic aristocrat i looked that word up i have to say he's paralyzed from the neck down and in a wheelchair uh, the aristocrat of a noble house in france um hires this young man from the the criminal suburbs the les projets of paris i think it is and and they they clash the two worlds clash in this like heartwarming heartbreaking and marvelous little french film um that you've picked and i love it i love this film i love everything about this film talk me through why you love it i mean i'm sorry this film about the two worlds colliding it's uh, the street smart guy and uh, the noble guy kind of uh, it starts out with uh, the the guy from the streets he's he grows up in a little house with like so many people living there and they all call each other family we're not sure if they really are family related or not but it's it's kind of they they grow up there together and he has to go to get to try and get a job to go to a job interview uh just to to get his money for not for not being able to work basically and he ends up at this guy's house and it's it's like he feels like he's in a palace but uh knows he doesn't belong so he kind of flunks the interview and then leaves but somehow the 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 nobleman said yeah no i want this guy he seems fun and it's just this him not touching the other guy with with like white gloves like an equal even though he's in the wheelchair is like my my favorite line in the whole film is but papa chocolate when uh he's eating some chocolates the paraplegic guy wants some and he's like well you don't have arms so you don't get chocolate it's like so the scene is well done and it's funny and it's so heartwarming and just to see them become actual friends it's it's great Yeah. and i mean i mean that joke is is done in like it's it's not it's done tastefully isn't it it's not like degrading or anything it's it's all done with a very human approach to it and and it's just it's it's feel good and heartbreak all in one and it it what a film go watch it um my last trivia question we just about have time before we have to finish this off which marvel marvel franchise franchise is omar c in because he's in one Omar Sy is the the um African American African French actually uh, actor in this. Ooh. Um I I I Oh wait, no, I was I was I was heading to Black Panther but I I think I remember seeing him in in the X-Men film. He is well done. He stars alongside James McAvoy, Jennifer Lawrence, Haley Berry, and Peter Dinklage amongst others in Days of the Future Past 2014. Very well done. You did very well on the on the trivia. I need to step up my trivia game for the next person on this. 
Listen, Manu, thank you so, so much for coming on here. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Um, I really hope to see you in the real world, hopefully in both Switzerland and England, and we'll definitely work together again in the future. Um, look after yourself, say after yourself, stay safe, and thank you. Thank you, and stay safe as well. All the best to everyone around there. To all our three listeners, thank you and goodbye.